Hi everyone, welcome to Truth and Beauty. I'm Brian. And I'm Jesse. We're bringing you conversations about the world between an astrophysicist who can't draw and an artist who dropped out of high school. Jesse, I want to know a little bit about your experience in art class in school. Do you guys ever do a lesson on perspective? Does that ring a bell for you? Uh, <laughs> I definitely did have an art class in school, but I have little flashes of memories <laughs> from that. I, I'm sure we did something with perspective. I know, oh, yeah, we did the thing where you like draw boxes with lines that all point to a point. Yeah. Vanishing point? Yeah, yes, I think so. Exactly. I'm going to do a little exercise that might Ooh. be familiar. So I found this piece of paper in your backpack. Are you going through my stuff? <laughs> the front of it says, alignment between protostellar outflows and filamentary structure. Oh, no. It's a, <laughs> it's a sheet from the Astrophysical Journal. Do you mind if we use the back of it? That's fine. That's not my paper. Okay, great. So I'm going to give you this piece of paper mm. and this, this is pencil. Fun. First, I want you to draw a line straight across the paper in the oh, middle God. of it. This is a lot of pressure. No, you got it. You got it. Okay. A line? Yeah, just a line across it. Wow, that was a really good line. Now put <laughs> a dot in the middle of that line. Okay. And that's the vanishing point All right. that you were describing. So then if you draw anything on the top, it feels like it's in the sky and then anything mm -hmm. in the bottom would be either the ocean or the land. So that's that's what the horizon line is. So the classic example of this is a picture of train tracks receding into the distance and it looks like the lines converge. Of course, that's also an illusion because parallel lines can never meet and your eyes interpret that as space receding yeah. instead of as the train tracks getting really small. So I just drew some train tracks. Yeah, that's really good. I'm and impressed. It looks like they're receding in the distance. So that's basically what the lesson would be in school, especially in this part of the world. And the person who came up with that was this Italian artist called Filippo Brunelleschi. In the early 1400s, he did this demonstration. It was recorded by a historian around the same time, about 100 years after, so take it with a grain of salt. But apparently he went downtown. There was a big building there that he did a painting of, and it was a very accurate painting employing all the techniques that you just showed with the vanishing point and the lines receding in space, whereas a lot of paintings at the time were sort of struggling to create that perspective. So he did that, and then he put a mirror there as well that reflected the actual image of the building onto the mirror. And then he had people look at the reflection of it and compare it to his painting. You're saying that he painted a building. Yes. And then he brought a mirror to the building as well. And he was like, he invited the village and was like, yeah. which one is the painting and which yes. one is the mirror? Well, no, not. <laughs> I think you can tell which one's the mirror because if you move, the image shifts. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but the whole point was, look how geometrically accurate my painting is. He was showing that these lines went to the vanishing point, And if you just follow these rules, you can recreate reality. And so for the past 600 years, we've just been replicating that same technique with the vanishing point. Sometimes there are multiple vanishing points to show different perspectives. Like, for example, if you look up at a building, it gets smaller as it goes up, but it also gets smaller as it goes 
back. Oh. So further away from you, vertically and horizontally, it gets smaller. So you need more than one vanishing point. That's so interesting. Yeah, so you'd get the bird's eye view where the top of the building looks huge and the bottom is just this tiny point like the end of the train tracks. Or you have the worm's eye view where <laughs> where the foundation of the building is massive and you can't even see the top. See, that always confuses me when I'm trying to draw something like a box as a, you know, a math person. I think of a box like a cube. The cube has a bunch of parallel lines and I draw it in space and I draw all the lines parallel. They're never going to meet, but that doesn't look right. It looks like an illustration from a math textbook. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a math textbook. It doesn't look like the real world. Yeah. But I know that those lines are parallel in physical space, but because I'm looking at it from one point of from view. From one person's perspective, they they're never parallel, they're never the same length. Oh, that's blowing my mind. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you work with all these visualizations that they don't have perspective in them. They're just mathematical, right? Well, that's true. But I mean, in astronomy, you know, we only have one perspective, the point of view of us on Earth. We mm -hmm. can't We can't move around the other side of a star and see behind, you know. We do only have one perspective, and that and that can really fool you. I was just at a conference where somebody is figuring out like the three-dimensional shape, the real shape in space of our galaxy for the first time, being able to figure out how something would look from the other side, which is just mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing because I think everyone thinks of space as from the perspective of somebody in a planetarium. Like, it's just painted on the sky. Yeah. Like, we're seeing the front of everything, but it's so interesting that there might be things in the sky that are more like a dinner plate that you have angled so it's it's horizontal and so you're just seeing a strip of it like you might think it's just a white strip but in reality you're missing the whole yeah. the whole surface area the paper that you made me draw this drawing on is actually <laughs> all about perspective oh really yeah it's called alignment between protostellar outflows whatever that means, yeah. and filamentary structure, whatever that means, mm -hmm. but it's alignment. So it's like the same thing as perspective in art. It's like we're trying to figure out what the real orientation of objects are in space purely on how they look from our one measly little earthbound perspective. I think it's actually the opposite of perspective in art because when you do a painting, you don't care how things actually are. And beginner artists try to include every angle. That's a beginner mistake to say, well, this arm of the chair is behind it, but how are they going to know it's a chair if I don't put this arm in? It ends up looking sort of cubist. So cubist art is supposed to show you multiple perspectives on the same object? Yeah, it sort of explodes perspective. So you might see a table, like right now we're sitting at a table, and I can only see a little bit of two legs. Of course, I know there are more than two legs. If I did a painting of this, a, a realist painting, I would just show the little bit of two legs and your brain would finish the rest. A cubist painting might you might see those back legs coming out of there. What do you think of when you think of Egyptian art? Like, what, what's going through your mind when I say that? Um, okay, so I'm thinking of uh, Pharaoh. That's what they're called, right? Yeah. Yeah, Pharaohs. Uh, and he's got that cool headdress on. Mm -hmm. And... Very stylized. Yeah, I think that most people don't view Egyptian art as very realistic. It's seen as more symbolic. They would depict gods and pharaohs, as you mentioned, as very large. And then they had hierarchical perspectives. So the slaves, servants, even wives were very small. And they're actually extreme examples of this. I always wonder, like, if you think of servants as lesser, you don't really see them as much. And so you might actually think of them as 
a smaller. I want to make sure that we don't start comparing it to our world and saying, you know, how could they think that people were smaller? Why did they show them as that when obviously they're physically the same stature? But you're right that your psychology impacts your vision and not just when you sit down to do a painting or a carving, but actually in real life. Like you're registering more what my face is doing than what the people on the street outside the window are doing. And your memory of that will be stronger. And therefore, in a way, my face is bigger than the world. When beginners draw and they do a portrait, they'll make the face huge and they'll make the hands really small when actually your hands are the same size as your face, basically. I mean, this is something I always struggle with when I'm trying to draw a person. Yeah, I always draw the face too big. The eyes are always too big. And the forehead's tiny because who cares about the forehead? There's nothing going on there. Yeah, so I always put the eyes too far up the head. And it always looks cartoonish, which I guess that sort of why cartoons are drawn that way, because they're more symbolic, I guess. Like, they're not trying to depict something accurately or realistically. They're trying to accentuate the things that we already accentuate. So big eyes is like a big thing, right? Yeah. And so you could argue that those actually are more authentic, that that's more similar to how we actually see the world than a photo is. And so we've created our own value system that the more photographic a drawing is, the better it is. So this started with the Renaissance. And ever since then, we've just said, okay, here's our vanishing point. Things recede into it. And here are the proportions of people. Yeah. And it's so interesting what's so fundamentally correct about drawing a scene that looks like it would look if you were just standing in one spot, glued to that spot. Funny that you say that, standing in one spot, because you're sitting in one spot now and I'm watching your eyes and they're darting all around the room back and forth, up and down, because your eyes aren't fixed, because you're not a camera. Even the idea that the artist is standing in one spot and looking Mm. at the scene is a fallacy because the artist's canvas is right in front of their faces. In order for the canvas to be exactly replicating where the artist is standing, you need to have a glass canvas or a hole in the canvas to see through it. You, You can't be seeing exactly that perspective of where the canvas is. Because it's so hard to really turn your subjective brain off and just view the world as reality, maybe it's not how we're actually meant to see the world. Maybe maybe it it's difficult because it's wrong, because our natural instincts to create art in a really subjective, misshapen way, maybe that's how we actually see the world. And I, I think, of course, the truth is somewhere in between. But um, if you look at different cultures, not everybody follows this vanishing point thing. These Chinese paintings I've been looking at are so fascinating because each object has its own perspective to it. So each object has its own vanishing point. I love that idea that each object is its own little world, has its own perspective, and that it's not supposed to be this cohesive scene. Wow. When you have this knowledge, then when you go into the art museum and you see things and you're like, that's not right. You know, that, that table doesn't look like that in real life. I think it's good to question yourself and think, okay, but what am what do I actually see? Not what am I converting into a photograph in my mind. Mm-hmm. I probably think about this a lot more than most people or even artists because of all my eye issues. My eyes actually don't align. And so most of the time, like I'm I'm seeing two of you right now. I'll look at an object, I'm drawing it, and then suddenly my eyes shift in dominance. So I might for the first half of the drawing be drawing seeing only out of my left eye. And that becomes the dominant image. Have you ever tried 
going with that and drawing what you see then? You mean overlapping images, like a yeah. double exposure? Yeah. I have not realized when they switched and then the object I was drawing would look really wide because I would try to make it align on the left side with the vase and on the right side with the potato that I'm also drawing. And then when I actually look through one eye, I find it's either aligned with the vase or the potato, not both. That's crazy. I wonder how many visionary artists or... <laughs> visionary, I like that. Uh, yeah. I'm sure there must be examples of artists who like have the same issue that you have trouble... I am so glad you brought that up because it just reminded me <laughs> of Monet. You know Monet's water lilies? Uh-huh. Okay. He was one of those people, like Van Gogh, Van Gogh would just sit in his house and he painted the same church, I think, hundreds of times at different times a day, on different days, just obsessive, the same thing, different colors. And Monet was the same way with his backyard and he had this little bridge and he would go out and he'd paint these water lilies over and over and over and over again in all different sizes and scales and times of day. And he had cataracts. And so over time, his eyes were degenerating. His vision was becoming worse. And so this blurriness, this ethereal quality that we love about them and sort of these overlapping, mixing colors and everything, that was unintentional. And when he actually had a surgery later in life to correct his vision, he was appalled at his own work. What? Yes. Seriously? He ended up looking at those paintings, and I believe he destroyed a lot of them. Whoa. Because he... He He was trying to draw... He was More trying to draw them, and he thought that he had been painting them correctly. Oh, my God. So, wait. Was he, like, the first Impressionist? Or You could say that. He was one of the earliest so ones. So, this revolution in art and painting styles, that's just well, amazing. He and I don't think it, it was something that had been brewing for a yeah. while. Um, this classic trope of the Impressionist trying to get into the gallery, and the Nazis thought of it as degenerate art, and they ridiculed it. Because they they were like, this is crazy. It was like the wildest thing you could paint. I love the name Impressionism because it's just what I was talking about. The impression of something that you get. It's not capturing the photographic reality. It's capturing the feeling that you have in the experience of visualizing it. Which I think just gets to the heart of this question. This whole idea of realistic art being defined by this very strict perspective and counter to that all of the you know more abstract art where I think there's certainly been a backlash to that like very strict rule of perspective. This is the one way that you represent objects in space and there is no other way. Um, and there's this backlash for hundreds of years against that. Maybe that backlash has gone too far that at some point you get to a place where you can make a piece of art and you can say it reflects something about it that I perceive. This object or emotion or feeling or idea that is true to me. So you cannot question its quality because it may not look like that to you, but it, it truly is is this way to me. You know, you can take that to an extreme and that's what a lot of super abstract art does, I think, which I think alienates a lot of people because a lot of people rightly see that and are like, you know, just making that up. You're just pretending like you see something, that this has some meaning to you. And I'm not saying every abstract artist is a fraud, but I don't know. How do you how do you feel about that? I, I respect anybody who does art and is crazy enough to get up on a public stage and say, I've created this. It's valuable. But I think that realistic, academic, foundational drawing is coming back. I think people are starting to emphasize that more urban sketchers, people going out to museums sketching. Of course, that's always been a thing, but it's coming back. And I know from my teaching, I have people writing me all the time saying, I want to learn to draw 
things that are in front of me. People want to know how to draw their hands. Yeah. So I, I think that it's making a comeback. And I think that that's the backlash to the backlash. Pretty much all of art history is counter to previous art history. When we look at art, if we can just take that leap with other cultures to say, okay, this looks funky to my Western Renaissance-informed eyeballs. This looks funky, but maybe if I'd been raised in a different culture, maybe if I hadn't ever been exposed to this vanishing point, then I would be more open to it. And yeah. to try to open up your mind to that, even without that cultural exposure. Hey, everyone. We started Truth and Beauty as a way to share the stories we've come across in our work. Because this is a brand new podcast, it would mean so much to us if you took a second to rate and review. Yeah, at this point, any feedback would actually make a big difference to us. That's how other people find our show. You can also check us out on Instagram at Truth and Beauty Pod, where we'll be posting visual show notes and behind-the-scenes photos. Now here's Jesse with a scientific take on perspective. Hey, Brian, have you ever noticed when the moon is low in the sky, it looks huge compared to when it's overhead? Yeah. So why do you think that is? Um, I always thought it had something to do with the atmosphere, so some sort of distortion, like you might see a mirage when you're driving down the road when heat is radiating off the road, so something like that. Well, the truth is we don't actually know exactly why the moon looks larger when it's on the horizon. Scientists have been trying to answer this question for thousands of years. Aristotle was the first to try to explain why the moon looks bigger on the horizon. He thought it had something to do with a, a dense and misty atmosphere, kind of like what you're talking about. Aristotle also thought that we see things by shooting sight rays out of our eyes. Other ancient Greeks agreed that the moon appears larger because of some interaction of light with the air, but all these explanations assume that the moon really does cover a larger area of the sky when it's on the horizon. The moon illusion gets super weird when you try this simple experiment. Can we do it now, even though it's daytime? Well, the moon's not out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you wait till the moon's out and you hold a coin out at arm's length so that it perfectly covers the moon when it's on the horizon, Wait until the moon's high overhead and do the same thing. The same coin covers the moon perfectly, so it's all just a big optical illusion. Your mind playing a trick on you. So this might be a stupid question, but every night does the moon travel across the sky? Because you're saying to compare them? Like, how long would you have to sit out there to get that comparison? So the moon rises and sets, just like all the stars and the sun. So you'd have to wait, like, a few hours. So if you watch the moon rise over the horizon, wait a few hours and repeat the experiment. And even though I'm a scientist, I'm an astronomer even, I know that the moon is not coming closer, I know it's not expanding in size, I'm still tricked by this illusion. I can't unsee it. Well, I guess this one confuses me, and I didn't even know it was an illusion because I feel like I'm always reading news articles about the latest supermoon or whatever, harvest moon or something like that. Uh, yes. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, the supermoon. So that's something a little bit different. The supermoon is supposed to be when the moon is a little bit closer to the Earth. The moon is orbiting the Earth, but it's not orbiting in a perfect circle. So sometimes it's closer to us 
than other times, but it's not so super. So when it's closest in its orbit, it gets just a few percent bigger. It's a few percent closer. So it's kind of an exaggeration. Are these terms that actual astronomers use? Like, are you sitting around <laughs> in your department saying the supermoon's coming? No, we, we, we kind of joke about it. I feel like if it gets people excited about astronomy, excited about the moon, which you know most people just kind of take for granted, then it's not all bad. So the main effect that people think of when they see a huge moon and they text me and they're like, dude, look at the moon. It's gigantic. What is happening? Is this illusion? It's really an optical illusion. And it happens when the moon is close to the horizon. The ancient Greeks mostly thought that this was a real effect. The air was somehow affecting the image of the moon and making it bigger. It was something to do with this misty mirror-like air in the atmosphere. And so if the light from the moon is coming farther through the atmosphere, then it's more affected by this watery air. I mean, that's exactly what I would assume, that you're just looking through more layers of atmosphere the closer it gets to the horizon. The sun looks bigger on the horizon, too. It's just I don't recommend anybody look at the sun when you look at the sun through more atmosphere, more air. The blue light gets scattered away, and only the reddish light makes it all the way to your eyes. So that's why sunsets are red. Aristotle is kind of right that light interacts with the air. Fast forward a thousand years after Aristotle to Iraq, the Arab polymath Al-Hazm. He was born in 965 AD. And at this time, uh, at least astronomy was really being carried out in the Arab world. In Europe, there were the Dark Ages, all these plagues and religious crusades and things. They weren't doing much science. So the Arabs really carried forward the traditions of the ancient Greeks. So this guy, Al-Hazan, gave an explanation of the moon illusion, why we're fooled into seeing a larger moon on the horizon. So he said that when we look at the horizon, we see all of these distant objects like hills, trees, buildings, which are all very far away, but still, of course, a lot closer than the moon. Then when the moon is overhead, we only see a blank sky and there's no objects to compare to. He said that we judge the horizon to be farther away than the sky overhead. In Alhazen's view, the moon illusion occurs because we mistakenly interpret the horizon moon as being more distant. So if we think that the moon is more distant when it's on the horizon, but it actually appears the same size in the sky, our brains say, well, it must be bigger. You know, things that are farther away should appear to shrink. When you look up the sky, we have no context for distance. Alhazen's idea was that when we envision the sky overhead, we, we think of it as like a flattened bowl where the top of the bowl is closer to us than the sides. This could explain why we see the moon as being farther away. To really understand like why we would be fooled, I want you to like think about how we judge the size of ordinary things. So if you hold out your hand, now move it closer, you don't see your hand grow. The farther away you move your hand, the less of your field of view it takes up, right? So that's one way your brain judges distance. This is called its angular size. So if you know roughly how big an object is, you can judge how far away it is by measuring its angular size, how big it looks. Vice versa, if you know how far away an object is, you can estimate its true size. This system, it works well for like everyday objects and distances like hands, trees, things that are very useful. But if we don't know either how far or how big an object is, then this system breaks down. The moon is a perfect example of this. We have no conception of how big the moon is. It's thousands of miles wide, but um, we have no way to know that by looking at it. And our brains also have no clue how far away it is. So we're, we're easily fooled. And that's what Alhazen pointed out, that if our brains mistakenly assume that the horizon moon is farther away, then it will appear larger than the same moon high overhead. This is similar to 
the illusion called the Ames Room. Have you heard about this? No, I don't think so. I'm going to show you a video. I want you to describe what you see. Okay. So we've got these two guys. Kind of look like David Tennant. Oh, okay. So they're standing at the back of a room. we got a checkerboard floor. Two sort of weird windows. Oh. Oh, weird. Okay, so they're both standing in the back corners of the room, but one of them looks about three feet taller than the other guy. And then they switch sides, and of course the other guy looks huge. What happens when they switch sides? They, oh, oh my god, whoa. So they just walked from one door on one side of the room into the other side. One of the doors, they're about half the height of the door. And then on the other one, they have to crouch to get through it. But they look the same size from my perspective. That's crazy. And it looks like the guy actually shrinks when he walks to the other corner, right? Yeah. Yeah, or yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to even say what it looks like because it just looks like wild. It looks like an illusion. So the brain is fooled into thinking the people in the room are at the same distance uh, because it looks like the giant and the dwarf, they're all standing at the far wall. Mm-hmm. But really, the far wall is not at one distance to you. It is angled, and so one corner is much farther away than the other corner. But because of how the room is is structured and how the furniture is arranged... And where the camera is Where the camera is, know. the windows aren't rectangles. Everything is shaped to fool you into thinking that it's a regular rectangular room. When people are standing at the two corners, they're at very different distances, but our brain thinks they're at the same distance. But since they have very different angular sizes... The person closer to us takes up more of our field of view. The person mm-hmm. farther away takes up less of our field of view. We see a giant and a dwarf. We see like a huge person and a small person. We don't see the same size person just closer to us. So it looks weird. And in the moon illusion, similarly, the brain uh, is fooled into thinking the moon is at different distances, but it always has a constant angular size. So we again see a giant moon and a dwarf moon. But you said that people don't agree as to why this illusion yeah that's not the end of the story it sounds like it it sounds like that's a good explanation right and and this explanation still explains quite a bit of the illusion and is often repeated as the full story and it's definitely part of the story but if you do a survey people when they see the moon illusion most people say they think the moon on the horizon looks closer so you remember what al hazan suggested was that we see the horizon moon as farther away. But if most people actually see the horizon moon as closer, then this argument breaks down. I don't think those are in conflict, though, because I think that it's such a vague concept. Obviously, none of these people are sure when you're asking them of what's actually happening, but their brain is telling them it's bigger, so it looks closer. And I don't think that means that that theory isn't correct. I think that probably means the theory is correct. Under this idea, your your brain sees objects on the horizon as farther away, which then makes them appear larger. And then there's a separate decision made, maybe at a conscious level, that because the moon looks larger, it must be closer. Actually, there was a, there was a recent study just a few years ago where a neuroscientist stuck some subjects in an MRI and he showed them a, a virtual moon illusion. So he strapped VR goggles on these subjects and showed them an artificial moon at a horizon view and then overhead and looked at how their brains lit up. It's complicated, but there's a whole system of visual processing that goes on in your brain that takes a lot of different steps and it goes in a lot of different places in your brain. And 
what they saw was that there's some evidence for this, that the first automatic image processing system in your brain responds. Then later, the next step is this sort of more logical system which interprets where objects are. So you may be able to hold these two contradictory ideas that the moon is both farther away and closer at the same time. But there's a bunch of other possible explanations, too, for why this illusion happens. Other one that I like, that it has something to do with this thing called micropsia. Uh, This is a condition which literally means small seeing. A condition that can be induced by, like, infections and migraines or drugs like LSD. To give you a clue as to what this condition is, another name for it is Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Look at me. Why did I drink that? Patients, usually children, have described Alice in Wonderland syndrome as looking the wrong way through binoculars. So this actually happens. People just wake up and see the world like that. And it can last for like a day or a week. And it sounds really scary. You don't need actually to contract a virus or drop acid to induce micropsia for a short period of time. This is a possible theory to explain the moon illusion as well. Some scientists argue that when viewing the moon in a blank night sky, there are no objects to focus your eyes on. So your eyes actually revert. They focus on their natural focusing point, which is just a few feet away from your head. You might experience this also in a dark room. You turn the lights on and, you know, your eyes take a little while to adjust to to focus on the objects around you. So our eyes, in their resting state, they they focus on a point that's just a few feet in front of our head. Perhaps this causes the moon in the background to appear smaller than the horizon moon. This is not agreed on. It's kind of controversial, and I've actually read a bunch of papers where scientists are bashing each other over a possible explanation. I think what's really cool about the moon illusion is that it's one of the oldest ever recorded. Some scholars say that actually the ancient Babylonians had a record of the moon illusion in cuneiform. So it's ancient. It's thousands of years old. People have been um, noticing and recording this effect. But it's still being debated today. We still don't have a complete explanation for why this optical illusion occurs. So what are you going to do the next time you see the moon, Brian? Um, Probably just enjoy it. I know there's a lunar eclipse (laughs) tomorrow, so if I can make it out in the cold, I'll... Just look up at it and try to try to tune out all the facts you've told me and just enjoy the natural wonder. Truth and Beauty is produced in Baobab Tree Studios in downtown New Haven, Connecticut, and edited by Brian Chavoni and Jesse Federson. 